Well, good morning. Christ is risen. So I don't always have nightmares the night before I preach about the sermon, but I did last night. I, I think it was just about the sermon and how it was going to play, but I also knew that in this service I would have my wife with me and my parents and her parents and family and friends. I'm not going to tell you who they, who they are. Just in case this goes badly, I want them to be able to get out without being accosted in any way. And I don't want them to have to bear the shame of being identified with me if this goes badly. But it is, though, without looking at any of them, it's good to have my family here. And Julie, you're just going to have to stand with me. We're going to live or die together, babe. This is, this is a difficult word, a difficult word to say, and maybe a difficult word to hear. I hope not. I hope it's a word that, that is life-bringing and, and freeing. But it may, at least in the middle, seem iffy, not sure where we're going. And I, I'm going to try to make sure that it doesn't get too lectury, which means I'm going to get as preachy as I can, which is, you know, sweating and yelling and throwing my coat and those kinds of things in the midst of the lectury parts. For the better part of the last 10 years, I've been working both in the church and in the academy, professor and pastor and teaching pastor. And what I've learned is that there are many people out there who are praying that I will turn to the other venue so that, let me give you an example. Several years ago at ORU, I was invited to give a lecture about human sexuality and Christian faith. There were a series of professors from different departments in the university who were to give a talk. And it was a large audience. I was the last to speak. And then the first question was addressed to me. And it wasn't really a question. The man stood at the back of the room and he said, Dr. Green, that was interesting. Um, if you were to give me your notes, I probably could like make something out of that. And there was the awkward silence like there is right now. And then I started giggling, right? <laughs> and then people died laughing. And which was his subtle way of saying, you know, maybe you're not really cut out for this professory thing. But, you know, I could help you if you give me your notes. Research assistant, in other words. But then just a couple weeks ago in class... I'm, I'm teaching, and there's a, there's a man, again, at the back of the room who hasn't spoken yet, but I can tell he's kind of building up to it. And so he makes this comment, and he says, I'm not sure how to say this, which is always a bad sign. Like when someone tells you they're not sure how to say it, but you know they're going to say it anyway, you prepare yourself. And he had a almost caricatured Georgia draw. So if you've been to the South, you know what it sounds like when someone's been raised in Georgia. It took him about 15 minutes to say what I'm going to tell you in 15 seconds. <laughs> But he builds up to this. He says, I guess what I'm saying is, you should be a pastor, not a teacher. Is this all you're going to do with your life? So here, here's the point for you. If this morning you find yourself praying that God will send me back to the academy, let this man be a professor, get him out of the pulpit, know that there are people there praying against you. They're praying me back into this place. So somehow... Somehow, you're going to have to win the war with their prayers as well. All right, let's read the text, Psalm 91. We read this together already, but let's, let's turn our attention to it again. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. No scourge come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. 
You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. On the face of this, it seems to be a promise that if you are hidden in God, if you are rightly, intimately related to God, bad things don't happen to you. He says, if you make me your habitation, if you make me your refuge, no evil shall befall you. I will protect you. And you will tread on the serpents. You will defeat the lions. I will deliver you. I will set my angels to guard you. And they will not even allow you to dash your foot against the stone. This seems to be a promise that if we will give our life wholly to God and wrap our lives into his tightly, we won't even stub our toe in life. But we all know better than that because we've lived life. That cannot be what this text is promising, even though it seems to be what this text is promising. And this this brings me to where, where I want to begin. It's not enough that we read Scripture. It's how we read scripture that matters. It's not enough that we believe the promises of God. We have to believe them rightly. And so I'm going to start in an odd place. I'm going to start by defending the devil. You did not expect this when you came today. But the devil, we, I don't know that we really realize how tricky he is. We often talk like the devil's temptations are actually pretty obvious ones. I, I, I could give you an example of a sermon I heard recently that started in Genesis, the story about the serpent tempting Adam and Eve, and the serpent says, has God said? And the point of the sermon mostly was this is the way the devil tempts us. He, God speaks a word, and then the devil tempts us to doubt that God has said it. And maybe the devil works like that sometime. I don't know. That's not, Genesis 3 is not about the devil. It's about the serpent, which is a whole other story. But the, maybe the devil does that, but that's not where the devil's really tricky, Because that's not very tricky. If you love God and someone comes up to you and calls you to question God, you can get through that pretty easily. If you come up to me after the service and say something to make me question my wife, to question my trust in her, I'm probably just going to dismiss you because I know her. I may not even know your name. Why would I take your accusation about her? I know her heart. So, If the devil's only business is to get us to question God and we love God, how tempted are we really? How many of you ever seen a Jesus movie or a Jesus TV show that shows Jesus in the desert? These are always terrible, always terrible, because it's not a real temptation. I mean, you don't need to be Jesus to know if a serpent serpents up to you and starts speaking, (laughs) maybe don't give in to him, right? Like, I, I don't need to be Jesus to know to be like, no, thanks, and then invariably in those TV shows, the devil is, you know, if he isn't a serpent, then he's dressed all in black with like this horrific skin with worms crawling out of his nose. I mean, it's not hard to recognize, oh, this is the devil. He's tempting me. No thanks, right? But scripture says the devil is an angel of light. He's not tempting you to doubt God's word. I mean, maybe he does that sometimes, but that's not his real trick. The devil's real trick is to get you to believe unfaithfully. 
Now see, most of us have been taught, I'm guessing many of us at least have been taught, that believing is the goal. That The goal is to just believe God and to believe as intensely as possible. But that isn't the goal. That's the devil's goal for us, is to believe unfaithfully. What God wants for us is to believe faithfully, to trust what he has actually promised and not what we vainly imagine him to have promised. Because if I have intense belief, but it is rooted in a lie, I will be disappointed. Not because God is unfaithful, but because my expectations were false. And I think many of us, I don't want to say most of us, but many of us have been trained all of our lives to believe strongly in misunderstandings of God's promises and we are living constantly with disappointment because we have false expectations about what God's going to do. And we live our lives waiting on God to do stuff God's never going to do while God is waiting on us to do stuff we're never going to do because we're waiting on God to do the stuff he's never going to do. And so much of what we call living the life of faith is struggling with disappointments that are only there because we have bad expectations rooted in misunderstandings and misapprehensions of what God has actually promised. Now, if you made it this far, you might be okay. Luke chapter four. This is the story of Jesus' temptation. After his baptism, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days... He was tempted by the devil. No matter what you saw on the TV, the temptation was not three minutes. It was 40 days. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him during these 40 days in different ways, the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. You're hungry. You have the power to control what happens around you. Make bread. Jesus says, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority. For it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. I'll make you Lord if you'll follow this way. Jesus answered him, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, the holy place, and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. So he's in the highest place, in the holiest place, in the holiest city. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Do you know the text he's quoting? Psalm 91. Because where the devil's trick really becomes tricksy, to quote Gollum from Lord of the Rings, (laughs) which you have to do at some point, is not to get us to doubt if God has said something, but to believe strongly in something God has not said, but that we're fully convinced God did say. That's the real trick, to believe strongly but unfaithfully. Because when you believe strongly but unfaithfully, you're almost impervious to repentance. Because how is anyone going to break through to you that your faith is wrong? How can it be wrong to believe God's promises? 
but you're not believing God's promises. You're believing misapprehended notions of God's promises. You're believing distorted claims about God's promises that lead to bad desires and false expectations and then a life of disappointment and frustration because you're waiting on God to do something God is not going to do. And what Satan is wanting to do in this deepest, most intense temptation with Jesus is to get Jesus to claim the promises of God in a false way. And Jesus says, no, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is what it means to test God, to use his promises in ways he didn't mean them, to use his word against him for your own ends and not his ends. And this drives the devil away. When we misapprehend the promises of God, when we, when we take them wrongly, we end up turning what he means to be bread into stones. The temptation to Jesus was, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus says, no, we live by the word of God. But when you take the word of God, which is meant to be bread to you, and then you twist it or it is twisted for you so that you misunderstand what he purposes for you, then you make it a stone. Think about how many times in your life or in the life of people you've loved, you've seen Christians thinking they were doing good speak death to someone. I could give lots of examples. You could give lots of examples. But I'm thinking about a close friend of mine who lost his spouse tragically, horribly, and the comfort that Christians offered him. The comfort that they offered him, especially when his sense of grief seemed to go longer than they thought it should have gone about how you're supposed to trust God and if you trust God, you don't worry about these things and God has a plan and God, if he allowed this to happen, then on the other side of it, surely something good is coming out of it. But all of those ways of accounting are taking what should be bread, the comfort of God, and making it a stone. And I promise you in this room, most of us, if not all of us, have had other people think they're speaking gospel to us when in fact they're speaking death. And what's moving them on their side is that they're believing strongly in an account of God's promises that's actually rooted in a lie. Because they are wanting to think of God as a way of getting through this life the way they want to get through it. But that's not what God has promised us. And Psalm 91 or any of the other promises of God have to be heard as God intends them to be heard or we end up turning the bread of God's word into stone that brings death all around us or death to ourselves. So this is, this is Lent, as Cody's already so wonderfully said, the most wonderful time of the year. And in Lent, we, we, many of us have this practice of giving something up. So my challenge to you, to myself this season, is that whatever else we give up, what other bad habits we, we, we decide to, to quit, most of all, what we need to give up during this Lenten season are false understandings of God's promises that lead to bad desires and false expectations and a life of frustration and confusion while we're waiting on God to do what God's not going to do and God is waiting on us to do what we're unwilling to do. That's what Lent needs to be about. Spirit, purge us of these bad sense, these bad senses and understandings of what you promise, so we can live faithfully and we know where to put our faith. We know what to hold on to. So let me start here. There's a phrase that all of us have. We've all appealed to it. I've appealed to it. You've appealed to it. You've heard people appeal to it. But I want us to all agree. You don't raise your hand because I'm not sure all of you would, but I want you to agree to take this phrase and we're all going to take it and break it and set it on fire 
and watch it burn to nothingness and then walk away. And that phrase is this, God is in control. We don't don't ever want to say that again. What we want to say instead is that God is sovereign. And here's what I mean. To say God is sovereign is not to say that God is in control. It is also not to say God's not in control. God's sovereignty is not like control at all. So it's not true that God is at the mercy of what happens in the world. God is not surprised. God is not threatened. God is not kept from being God by anything that happens in the world. He's not out of control. But he's also not in control. He's sovereign. Because his relationship to the world is unlike anything else's relationship to the world. Control, it would, make, would be able to act in a way that would make the other thing not what it is on its own. When you have control, you're not free. If I control you, then you're doing what I will, not what you will. That's what control means. But God is sovereignly creative, which means what he does is create my freedom. Now, this is getting a little luxury, but I'm going to get loud and preachery too, so you're going to be all right, I promise. But this is, this is a crucial point. Control takes your freedom away from you and takes God's freedom and forces it onto you. But creativity and sovereignty does not impede your freedom at all, and yet God is God. And we do not want to say God is in control, because if God is in control, then nothing that's happening is really happening. God is making it happen. So when we talk about our salvation, I do not want to say God made me get saved. Why not? Because then it's not my salvation. It's just something God is forcing me to do. I'm just a puppet in the hands of God. But I also don't want to say that I'm saving myself. So what do I mean when I say by grace? I mean that it's freely God and freely me. It's not 50% God and then God waiting to see if I'll do my 50%. It's not God taking me all the way to the last mile of the journey and saying, now you're going to have to walk the rest yourself. It's 100% God and 100% me. Because God's relationship to me is creative. It's sovereign. It's not controlling. And it's not not controlling. It's unlike control completely. It's a kind of relationship only God can have with us. This is good news, whether you realize it yet or not. Because if, if not, if God is in control, then God is directly responsible for the evil that happens in this world. Let me, let me put a fine point on this. When Kevin Carter, who was an award-winning photographer in the, in the 80s and 90s, he was taking pictures in Africa with a team of photographers of apartheid and civil war. And in 1993, he took a picture of a child, a starving Sudanese girl in Sudan, who is, she's collapsed on her face. She's emaciated, and you can see her ribs. And in the background is a vulture about to devour her. And he takes this picture. It wins a prize for him, an international prize, Pulitzer Prize. And, but for the rest of his life, which isn't very long after that, he, he talks about how this moment horrifies him. And I think, whether we realize it or not, deeply seated in us is this sense in which God is an agent in the world who could control what happens, but doesn't, or sometimes doesn't. So that God is like this photographer. He's seen it, and sometimes he rushes in and takes the child and shoes the vulture away, and sometimes he stands back and lets the vulture eat the child. And when you talk about control, that's the only place this can lead. 
God is able but doesn't do anything about it, or God's not able. And both are unfaithful ways of talking. Hear me carefully. It's not that God is not in control. It's not that God is at the mercy of what's happening, but God is not in control in that way. He's not there able to do something and doesn't do it because he has some other plan. God is sovereign, which is something else altogether. I heard a sermon recently, and if you think this sermon is bad, you should have heard that one. (laughs) And and the point, the, the title of the sermon was, Can I Trust God? And of course, the answer was yes. But it was the reasoning that was troubling. You can trust God, the sermon said, because God is in control. And then the core image that was used for the sermon was Disney World. He said, you know, you go to Disney World. And you're there, you're enjoying the ride, you're eating your cotton candy. If you're there in the summer, you're about to die of heat stroke. But you're having a good time, right? You're waiting in line, you're... You're having a blast, you and your family. But underneath Disney World, underground and hidden away from your view, is a control center. And they're watching you on the cameras. And they're making sure all the rides are running smoothly and none of the lines are too long. They're making sure that everyone is having a good time. That's just like God. No, it isn't anything like God. Life is not Disney World. When there are starving babies with vultures skulking them, That's not Disney World. When people are dying in the midst of horrific tragedies in civil wars all around this world, that's not God pushing a button in some control room. That's wicked. All of this is happening within the life of God, within God's work with us, but God is not some control center where some levers are pushed or not pushed and some buttons are smashed or not smashed so that what happens in the world happens. We have to get rid of this notion of God being in control because if we don't, what we do is speak death to everyone around us while we're trying to speak life. And we're trying to have faith that God's gonna act on our behalf, but we think God is in control. If you've ever had this experience, I can remember so many times in my life praying for someone to be healed and it not happening And what I feel on the inside is anger. God, why? I've seen you do this before. Why aren't you doing it now? But that anger is because of a misunderstanding of what the promises of God are. That anger is rooted in a disappointment. That is a disappointment rooted in a bad expectation. And it's not that there's anything wrong with being angry with God. That's part of the life. But we can and should ask God to cleanse us of those kinds of expectations. God is not running the world like a Disney park, pushing buttons and watching us on the screen. It's much more beautiful, much more mysterious, much more difficult to comprehend, but also much more hopeful than that. We don't want to say that about horrors and tragedies, like this woman that we heard about on the news just last week. You probably saw it or heard it yourself. This grandmother who left her granddaughter in the car while she ran into a store, and it was cold outside, so she left the heater on, and when she came back, Her grandbaby had died of a heat stroke. Do you want to say to her, God is in control? God has a plan? No, you don't want to say that. No, you don't want to say that. When you walk into a pediatric care unit, do you want to say to those parents, God is in control? When you walk into the war zone in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, do you want to look at all those people and say, God is in control? No, you don't. What you want to say is that God is sovereign. 
which is something utterly different. What is it? What do we mean? When we say God is sovereign, we mean that God acts in this time, but until the end of everything, God never does everything God can do. Now think about this for a moment. God acts, but until the end, until what we call the coming of the Lord, God never acts fully. This is the way Paul will say it in 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. That means everything that happens in this world right now, to everybody everywhere, God is active, but not doing everything God can do yet. So that God has acted and is acting, but there's still more for God to do that hasn't been done yet. And we're living between what God has done, is doing, and what God is yet to do. That means that we've not yet, God hasn't been God fully yet, except in Jesus Christ. The only place we've seen God do everything God can do is in Jesus. And that's what makes us Christians, is that we look at Jesus and we say, when our God does everything God can do, it looks like that. It looks like a man who is born miraculously and brings life and hope and joy and peace and comfort to everybody who's around him who speaks truth, who corrects the wrongs that he sees, who saves that woman from being stoned, who raises that child from the dead, who even when he dies, passes out death, out the other side of death into a whole new life. Because when God does everything God can do, it looks like Jesus' relationship to God. But that's only true for Jesus right now, not yet for us. The way Hebrews will say it is, quote Psalm 8, God, you have set all things under the feet of humanity. But we do not see that promise fulfilled yet. But we do see Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And looking to Jesus, we move toward obedience. Do you know what, what it's telling us? God has done everything God can do for Jesus, but has not yet done everything God can do for you or for me. And that means I live by faith and not by sight. Until the end of all things, I live by faith and not by sight. And that means I never see everything God can do. Whether it's bad or good, there, there are gonna be things that happen in my life and your life that are unfortunate, and then there are gonna be things that happen in your life and my life that are evil. The unfortunate things you can deal with, but there are some things that are gonna to happen to you, have already or will happen to you, that are absolutely evil. And God is not doing that, and God is not allowing that. God's not through acting on that, which is an entirely different way of understanding it. That evil thing that happened to you, God didn't do it to you, and God didn't stand back like that photographer and watch it happen. God is not through being God to you yet. And what it means to have faith is that you trust that when God is through being God, that evil will be made right. Not forgotten, not brushed over, not pretended not to have happened, God will make it right. And if that doesn't happen, then our hope is in vain. But our hope is that when God is through being God, this is why the, the characteristic prayer of the Old Testament is, how long, Lord? Because the prophets are looking forward to the act of God in which God is God, and they want the day of the Lord to come. And in the New Testament, you know what the heart of the prayer is? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because we've seen what you've started to do. Now we want you to finish what you started. Because when you finish what you started, everyone will know what we trust already. And that is that you are good and you are wise and you are just in all of your ways. But until then, 
we have faith and not sight. Which means we trust what our experience tells us is foolish. Martin Luther said it this way. If all we had was our experience of the world, we would have to determine that either there is no God or that the God that is is wicked. But when you see with the eyes of faith, you understand what's happening to me is not what's true about me. There is a God who's acting mysteriously and will act in the future mysteriously in ways that make what seems to be happening to me now to show to be untrue. What I'm experiencing now is not the truth about me. What he's going to do will show the truth about me. We, we don't know yet. This is, there's so much in Scripture that points to this. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard what he's prepared for us. We don't even know how to imagine it. It's a beyond what we can ask or think. And so we persevere, trusting that when he does all he can do, then we will know what it means to say God is good. You know, in some of our churches and some of our traditions, we have this habit of saying, God is good. And then the response is, all the time. But there's an unfaithful way of saying that. Because sometimes we say that, and I think what we mean is, my life is going like I want it to. Nothing evil is happening to me now. Nothing unfortunate is happening to me now. But when we say God is good, we don't mean my life is going well. When we say God is good, we mean it as a defiant act of faith. We mean no matter what's happening in this world, no matter what babies are being aborted, what babies are starving in killing fields, no matter what Christians are being persecuted, no matter what betrayals are happening, no matter what kind of political corruption there is, we believe God is good. And when God is through being God, everyone will know in sight what we now trust in faith, that God is good and God is wise and God is just in all his ways. And until then, we keep disputing our experience with faithful claims like that. But we don't kid ourselves. Our experiences do seem to challenge the lordship of Jesus Christ. But we stand by the bed of the sick person and we say, God is able to heal you. And if God heals you, we will rejoice and say, but this is not all God can do. And if you do not get well and you die, we will stand right by your graveside and we will say, God is not through being God. And when he's through being God, death will be defeated and sin will be defeated and all of these horrors and terrors will be no more and he will wipe every tear from every eye and he will make every wrong right and we will know the joy of the Lord that Jesus himself knows in the Holy Spirit. That's what we're hoping for and nothing less than that. We're waiting on God to finish what he started. We're trusting that that's coming and, and until that time, we live in faith. And we live in hope. Now, this is going to sound shocking to you, but for most of the church's history, the church has insisted that Jesus did not live by faith. He lived in the fullness of love. Because everything Jesus did, he did in full communion with the Father. So when you read the Gospels, Jesus never struggles with whether or not God will act when he prays. There's no record in the Gospels anywhere of Jesus praying and it not happening. But you and I know what it's like to pray prayers that don't seem to get answered. Because we do live by faith. But there's a, there's a purpose of God in this. Let me show you something in Romans 5. Romans 5, 3 to 5. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings. Isn't it strange how often in the New Testament these, these apostles... Talk about sufferings and how they boast in it. Paul will say in the Philippians, you have been graced to suffer. But in so much of what I've known as Christianity, the whole point of grace is not to have to suffer. 
And yet, throughout the New Testament, there are these claims that God can do anything, and yet suffering is at the heart of our life. In fact, Paul can even say, this life is present suffering. The way Paul summarizes what it means to be a human being short of the coming of Jesus is present suffering. And God's not going to save us from that because he's saving us in it. He's not going to save us from it because he's saving us in it. That's how our salvation takes place. Let me show you this. So he says, we boast in our sufferings knowing knowing that suffering produces endurance. Any form of the faith, any form of Christianity that doesn't train us in patience isn't true. And there are some forms of, of this faith that believe that you don't need to have patience if you have enough faith. That whatever you're struggling with, if you know how to get in touch with God, you, it'll be over. You can get out of it. You don't have to make a decision. Just let the Holy Spirit make the decision for you. You don't have to have that difficult conversation. Just pray and God will change their heart. But sometimes that leads, and there are ways in which that does happen. There are times in which the Holy Spirit does say, I want this and not that. There are times in which he intervenes in some way, it seems, that makes something open up easily for you. But if that's what you expect to happen every time, all the time, you will never suffer and you will never learn patience. And then notice this, and endurance or patience produces character. The only way in which Christ's character is going to be formed in me, in me, is as the Lord lets me live in the midst of endurance. There is no other way for his character to be formed in me. Now, I'm, I'm a believer. Ben talked about this in, in the service earlier. I'm a believer that in the presence of God, things happen. God does open blind eyes and deaf ears. God does change hearts. I believe in that. But that's never how character is formed. If I can put it to you like this, a lot of things can happen in an altar call, but godly character can't happen in an altar call. We will never learn to love our enemies by people laying hands on us. The only way we're ever going to learn to love our enemies is by having our enemies mistreat us over and over and over and over again and learning in the grace of God how to respond like Jesus to them. There is no other way for character to be formed in me, and it's that God trusts us that that's even possible. He entrusts us with that. He creates us in freedom that says, I entrust to you becoming like my son in your encounter with these people. He's not going to rescue us from those responsibilities. He gives them to us. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. I want you to think of it like this. When, you're, when God comes into your life, when God breaks into your life, he pours his own life into you. He pours the Holy Spirit into you. But the only thing that activates the love of God in your life is the experience of suffering. He does not send the suffering. He's not controlling it. He's not manipulating you. But the only thing that, will experience, that you can experience that will trigger in you the character of God and enable you to step into the fullness of what God purposes you to be is the experience that Jesus had of suffering. He is known as the man of sorrows because in this life, before God has done everything God can do to live a godly life leads to suffering. And the godlier you are, the more suffering you will have. 
Because at some point, it isn't just about your suffering anymore. It's about taking on other people's sufferings. Because the godlier you become, the more like Christ you become, it isn't just about what's happening in your life, but you're just as concerned about what's happening in the life of your enemy and the life of your neighbor. So that even if everything in your life is going well, if your bills are paid and your car's not broken down and your neighbor's aren't causing any trouble for you, and your kids aren't flunking out of school, the person living right down the street from you is suffering like you can't imagine. And as the character of God is formed in you, their problems keep you up at night. Because you recognize that's why you're in the world. That's why God's put his spirit upon you. Because his way of getting to them is through you. It's through your prayer and your presence. It's through your intercession. It's through you crying tears they don't even know how to cry. It's through you offering them bread and not a stone. And the more like Christ you become, the more burdens you take on. The more you recognize, that is my problem. Because what God is waiting on is for us to become responsible. There is a false understanding of our faith that says, God has done everything that needs to be be done, and I just trust it. As if the goal is to be as irresponsible as possible. And tell me if I'm wrong, but there are times in which it seems like that's what we've been trained to do. We look at the problems of the world, and we wave our hand and speak some kind of vague prayer or vague blessing. But John says, if you see someone in need, and you wave your hand over them and say, be blessed and be filled, and you do not give them food, the love of God is not in you. Because when the love of God is in you, when the Spirit has been poured out upon you, when you see the suffering of the world, that becomes your suffering. And you can't not step into it. You can't not say, let me help however I can help. God's not through being God. Let's wait on the Lord. And you begin to cry. How long, Lord, are you going to let this happen to these people? And you cry with the apostles. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world needs to be made right. And that shows these signs that you're taking on Christ-like character. You're becoming like Jesus. That's exactly who we see in Jesus. Someone who takes all of the burdens of the world on himself and says, I want you to know what God is really like. I'm almost done. I want you to think about Romans 8. Creation is growing, Paul says, waiting on the manifestation of the sons and the daughters of God. Now, this is going to sound heretical, but it isn't, I promise. Creation is not waiting on God. We're waiting on God. But everybody else and everything else is waiting on us. Waiting on you and me to be the sons and daughters he's made us to be. Because we are meant to be, as Paul says, co-laborers with him. Joint heirs with Jesus Christ. So that every blessing the Father means for the Son, he means for us. And every responsibility the Father means for the Son, he means for us. We share everything with Jesus. And God is waiting on us to take our inheritance. And our inheritance is intercession for this world. And bringing that into share in his life. This is why Paul will go on to say, what can separate us from the love of God? And then he gives you a list of possible separators. Famine, disease, persecution, the sword, Because those are the things you're going to experience. And the more like Jesus you you become, the more of those things you'll experience. Paul says, none of these things 
can separate us from the love of God. But in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. Not through them, not over them, but in them. Because we are meant to be not conquerors or conquered. Because that's about control. When you're dealing with control, there are the conquerors, the winners, and there are the conquered, the losers. But when you're talking about God, we are more than conquerors. We are neither conquered nor conquering. We don't kill our enemies, nor are we killed by our enemies. We love our enemies. And we forgive them no matter what they threaten against us. Because we understand there is nothing they can do against us that can keep us from the love of God. So we do not fear anything from anyone ever. You hear me? There is nothing to fear from anyone, anywhere, ever. Because we are in Christ, and in Christ, death has already been defeated. God has already done for Jesus. Everything is God, God is going to do, and as long as we are rooted in him, we will experience that too. So whatever happens, whatever happens, we are going to be just fine. Not because we're not going to suffer, but precisely in that suffering, we are going to be more than conquerors. To be more than a conqueror is to be hanging on the cross. Hanging on the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. A conqueror would never have been on the cross. Someone who's conquered would have just died on the cross with hate. More than a conqueror is, you can kill me, but you can't keep me from loving you. You can betray me, but you can't keep me from interceding for you. You can hate me, but you can't keep me from loving you because the love that's in me isn't just mine. It's flowing up out of the very life of God and nothing can separate us from that love. And so we come back to Psalm 91. Stand with me if you will. How do we hear this promise rightly? If it doesn't mean that to be in God means no difficulty is going to happen in this life, what does it mean? It means that God will teach us how to inhabit him in the midst of all of our difficulties. Listen to these last lines. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. He's telling you there's going to be trouble. In this life, Jesus says, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I will be with you in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. And I know this is hard to hear, and I, I don't want you to mishear it. When God is through being God, when God has done everything God can do, when the end has come in fullness and we see him as he is, we will recognize that all this that he's given to us now, this time of faith, this time of fasting is an honor. It's an honor that we are entrusted to be his body in this world, to be the people who speak his word of peace and life. And the way that God has chosen to be God, the way that God is God with us, is to wrap his life so tightly to ours that everything he's doing, he does with us. And what could be more of an honor than that? What could be more honorable than that? Last year, I was at a conference, and Lynn Hybels was speaking, and she was just telling a story about her time with these women in Syria 
who are suffering through this horrific, long civil war. And it was one of those moments in my life where the glass, the dark glass, got as, as clear as it ever gets. And I could see, shining on her face and in her story, how broken she was for these women who were telling her about losing their husbands and their sons and their homes and their churches and listening to her talk about these women whose names she learned, telling their stories about suffering. And all she's doing, all she's doing is just telling their story to us. That's all she's doing. And it was so obvious. This is what it looks like to be like Jesus. She's not waving a blessing over them. She is listening to their stories face to face, learning their names. That's what it means to be Jesus in this world. And you don't need to go to Syria or Iraq. Wherever you're living right now, I promise you, there are people all around you who need to be heard. And they don't need to hear any cliched nonsense about God being in control. They need to see someone cry with them. They need to see that someone understands that there are things about this life we can't explain, but we trust God in the midst of our not being able to explain. They need to see somebody who can say there is hope because God is not through being God. God didn't make this happen. God didn't let this happen. But let God do everything God is going to do. And then you'll see he is good. He is good. Just give him time. That's the bread you need to bring to your neighbors. Let me pray for you. God, make us responsible. Help us to see the ways in which you honor us by being with us in trouble so that we can be with others. And God, this is beyond me and beyond all of us. There's no way to say it exactly right. But God, we want to believe rightly in your promises. We don't want to live from disappointment to disappointment because we're misunderstanding what you're calling us to do. We don't want to bring death to our neighbors because we're telling them wrongly about what you've promised to do. God, we want to know the truth about you so we can speak truthfully and people will know how to anchor their faith in the truth. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you strip us. You strip us of our false ideas about what God has promised us and help us to see this is what you mean for us. Give us confidence to live in this world and hope that there is coming a day when every eye will see what we already grasp by faith, that you are good and you are just in all your ways. And until then, God, help us to endure. Help us to be faithful witnesses who take responsibility in this world. Those who are going to help me serve communion, if you'll come. Jesus was approached by some of his enemies once who said to him, Why do your disciples not fast? And Jesus said to them, they don't fast because I'm with them. The bridegroom is with them. But there is coming a day when the bridegroom will not be with them, and then they will fast. And that's the day you and I live in. We live in a time of fasting. The whole point of the fast is to prepare ourselves for the feast that's coming. And this meal that we share today looks back to Jesus' supper with his disciples, but it also looks forward to the marriage supper as Revelation talks about it. The feast at the end of everything, that when God is through doing everything God can do, the only thing we can do is have a party. The only thing we can do is invite everybody to the table and say, let's rejoice, because we were right all along. 
He is good. And he is just. So today, when you come to this table, come and let it awaken hope in you. I mean, this is just bread and wine. This is just an ordinary meal. But it anticipates something that's beyond what we can ask or dare to imagine. I mean, either we're right or we're not. And if we're right, there's coming a day when every wrong will be righted. When every wrong will be righted and God will make all things new. That's what we're hoping for. If this is all we've got to hope for, we are of all men most to be pitied, Paul says. If, you, if this is what you think God wants to do, God isn't much of a God. But when he's through being God, then we'll feast. So on the night he was... Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m., or 11.30 a.m. If you would like more information about who we are and what we're about, or to partner financially with what God is doing through Sanctuary, you can go to our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com. You can also download our mobile app from the App Store and Google Play. We hope you'll join us next week. Grace and peace.